0: And then, uh, at least on LinkedIn, you go by the Director of Spirit Research and Innovation. Is there
1: a different title? That is the title. Under my protest, that is the title that they gave me. Okay. Yeah. You don't like it? No, well, I mean, it's long and unnecessary for what I... I mean, I'm a director, but I, there's only one person in my division, which is me.
0: Well, it's, so I'm sounds like, better than like manager or senior manager. Yeah, I manager, mean, right? I wish they would
1: have called like whiskey research. Like when I say spirit research, people think like I'm a ghost hunter or like something <laughs> like that. <laughs>
0: This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. Every few months, we find a guest that scratches that itch. We want to get into the science of bourbon. And today, we're talking about wood. And everyone has a different answer when it comes to the question of how much influence does the barrel have on the whiskey? Is it 20%? 90? Is it 70%? Well, our guest today is going to help us get closer to finding that magic number. Andrew Wiebrink is the Director of Spirit Research and Innovation at Independent Stave Company. And his job is to get real deep and nerdy into wood, but not only just the wood, but the millions of permutations that you can have when it affects the taste of your whiskey. And we ask all the questions that you want to know about the effects of different char levels, toasting, stave seasoning, and storage, but not on just a scientific level, but also a hypothetical level. And his role at Independent Stave has him working on multi-year experiments with different wood varietals and aging conditions to see what hasn't been discovered yet. He's worked directly with Maker's Mark to create those finishing staves that you see used in their private barrel program. And lastly, we try to figure out, why would makers even consider getting rid of that mocha stave? Well, with that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char.
2: I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea, I dip back into an idea from October. You got to realize, folks, that I I do one above the char a week, and I get probably ten to twenty requests a week. And you know, there's a big pile I have. I go through them and I pick what I think are the best questions. And this one was actually focused on a news item, which was the Heaven Hill strike and John Mulville, who wrote me on uh, fredminnick.com Mulvihill, i hope i said that right want to know what the status and implications of the heaven hill strike were and want to know if there are going to be issues similar that we saw at heaven hill now at the time he was probably wanting to know my opinion on that we gave our opinion on a round table on this and and then just kind of um, you know let it play out but this is a this is a good question because these strikes happen all the time. In fact, you know, when Peoria, Illinois was hot and heavy with uh, the largest uh, distillery in the world at the time, Hiram Walker, you know, there were people going to the hospital, possibly body bags from um, all the union issues that they had had there. It was it was a really messy time in Illinois for all unions, and the Peoria, Illinois Hiram Walker Distillery was right there in the thick of it. And they just, you know what? They just didn't pay their people, you know? They didn't pay their people. And the people were fed up, and they striked. The more recent ones we have seen, basically every major distillery, Heaven Hill, Jim Beam, Four Roses, they have almost all gone on strike. And Brown Foreman, I think, was close. I think they were close. I think they had, like, the real last second they struck a deal but everyone has had these labor agreements come up and be very much discussed. And the fact is, bourbon is growing, and if you don't take care of your employees, you know I mean, you gotta you gotta take care of your employees, I'm not saying that's what they're doing, but the employees often don't feel like they're getting taken care of at the rate that bourbon is growing now, the other side is, distilleries often have their money tied up in things. It looks like they're making a lot of money because they have all these warehouses, they have all these sales going, but there's stuff tied up in taxes. There's all sorts of products that aren't doing as well as bourbon that's in a portfolio. So, I mean, it's a complicated issue, but to answer your main question, John, this is not going to go away and it will continue every single time i i, I expect uh, every time a, a labor contract is up i expect a strike i really do how long the strike lasts i can't say but i expect one every single time because they're you know they're just trying to get all they can and the distilleries are not coming to the table with a package that the labor unions want so I don't think this is going to go away, and it's going to run through the distilleries over the next few years. As long as bourbon is popular, I expect to see strikes. Well, that's going to do it for this week, folks. Make sure you hit me up on fredminnick.com like John did. Hit me up on fredminnick.com. Click the contact button and let me know your thoughts. What do you want to know? Just don't be disappointed if I don't read it for like a thousand years like I did John. Sorry about that, John. But that's going to do it this week, folks. Be safe out there. Until next week. Cheers. From their bar to yours,
0: Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at WhiskeyAmbitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. welcome back to another episode of bourbon pursuit the official podcast of bourbon kenny and ryan here tonight in the recording studios talking about something that is very critical to the bourbon aging process
3: the barrel maybe the most critical i mean mean, some say I, i can't remember the percentages i've been on so many damn tours and they say it but they say most of the flavor comes from the barrel and sixty percent, seventy percent. The numbers get thrown around, yeah. But whatever it does, it's magic and it works. So I'm so excited to dive into it and see what's going on. What it's such a huge part of the the industry and well, the whole spirits industry really is is all about the wood. So I'm I'm really interested to hear what's or deep dive into it a little more. Yeah,
0: I mean, it is the backbone of really what this industry is made off of and and what gives bourbon. Everything that we like about it, the the vanilla, the caramel, the coloring, and we're going to, as Ryan said, kind of dive deep into this because we're joined by Andrew Weebrink. I said it right. We were, we were going this over and, and before we started recording that he, the name gets butchered all the time wherever he goes, but he is the Director of Spirit Research and Innovation at Independent Stave Company. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. So before we dive into it and start getting into the bourbon and nonsense, kind of talk about... Your background and your history of, of what led you here. I mean, I we were talking beforehand. We actually we both went to the same alma mater, same high school, and I'm not sure if you knew at that point you wanted to get into researching wood and Corcus Alba and all that sort of stuff, right? So, no. kind of talk about your journey.
1: Yeah, definitely not. I'm actually a mechanical engineering major, so I went to University of Louisville right after high school, and I had always I'm a bourbon fan first and foremost. Before you know, spirit researcher, whiskey researcher, whatever. So, I've always been into bourbon. That was probably due to my dad. He worked for the government and his offices were ex-Buffalo Trace warehouses. So he worked right next door to the distillery, which those offices are now warehouses again. (laughs) So bourbon was kind of always around. So naturally he took an interest in it. I took an interest in it. And that's pretty much where it ended as far as, you know, like academic endeavors as far. I mean, it just had no interest in pursuing it as a career. About six or seven years into my engineering, I started a bourbon and cigar review website called The Barrel and Leaf. I did that for a little while and really kind of got into it. And then we had a project come up with the company that I worked for, and it was designing a machine that froze alcohol into ice cubes for the service industry. I think it was called Beyond Zero or something like that. to
0: say, isn't that impossible? Everybody kind of throws, I mean, I remember being in college, you throw Goldschlager and Jägermeister in the freezer. The idea is that it doesn't freeze, but it's easier to drink.
1: Yeah, it was, it was a challenging process. I mean, you can always use You know, liquid nitrogen that gets pretty cold. But this was guess you could go that route. This was something they wanted you to like be able to plug into a wall and just be you know totally mechanical, not have any kind of introduction of chemicals or anything. So it was actually you know I did we did that project for about two years. So I kind of took a deep dive into alcohol, the way it behaves under certain conditions and stuff like that. Obviously, I love bourbon at the time, so it was really caught my attention. And then through the promotion and kind of testing of that, I got to meet a lot of people that were in the industry. Kind of officially started going to a lot of different events, and I was like, you know what? this is kind of the place that I'd like to spend the rest of my career. The people were great. Atmosphere was awesome. We always had a great time no matter what. So I just, one day I told my my boss, I was like, man, I'm, I'm done with engineering. I'm going in the bourbon industry and got a job with ISC. They hired me after about five or six different interviews, me writing letters to the owner saying, you know, I really, really want this job. You know, I don't really have any experience in chemistry. Or anything I'm your like guy. That. Yeah, yeah. I am your guy. I'll learn very, very quickly. So how did Brad take that? Right. Well, Brad's an engineer. And I think what really, really helped was I did have a little bit of a background in corn breeding for distillation. That was kind of a hobby that I did on the farm. I just kind of did on the side. It was very kind of a low key operation. But the guy that was my predecessor, He didn't really have any formal education, but, you know, he kind of did my job as well. And he was kind of a tinkerer by nature. So he was just a very curious person. And apparently he worked out really well in that role. So I think what it was, was not necessarily my education, my background. I was passionate about bourbon and I think he appreciated that. But I think what he saw was that his nature for tinkering kind of lined up for mine. I was just a very curious person and just like to run experiments. So I think he's like, you know what? We can teach him the stuff. He's got the right kind of mindset for it. So I think that's really what it was. Why did you seek them out
3: versus going into distilling? You know, you see a chemical engineer or mechanical engineer. Why not be in manufacturing? Or what, what was it about the wood that excited you?
1: Well, actually, to be honest with you, I didn't really know it was with Cooperage until the first interview because the job description was like working with, you know, different companies, whiskey companies to come up with new products and that kind of thing. And I was like, wow, this looks really, really cool. And it wasn't until... You know, I talked to the recruiter the first day that was this is a cooperage. I'm like, wow, that's really, really cool. If it was me getting into, it, I'd be like, What's a cooperage? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, you know, it was a cooperage. I'm like, wow, this is getting really, really good. And then through the interviews, they just kind of explained to me, you know, what we'd be doing. And it just seemed like the dream job. I was I told I told Brad, I was like, I'm I still don't believe this is what I'm gonna be doing. So it uh over the next few months I did my training and sure enough, hopped right into it. It was awesome.
3: Was that the job that you have currently now, the research, the R&D? Yeah,
1: I've been in this job for over five years with the ISC now. So what was the R&D like back then when you first got into it? So as far as like oak R&D, I mean, the, oh, research into barrels of maturation has been around for quite some time, but most of our research and innovation was done in the wine industry because with bourbon, experimentation into barrels was happening, but as it wasn't really credible. It was kind of like of the mindset, you know, why why fix it if it's not broke? The char four barrel works great. And we make a lot of money selling these products. It wasn't until some of this, like the craft distillery boom and some of the heritage customers really started taking a turn into innovation and say, Hey, there's a lot we can do with wood makers mark in particular. You know, I joke with those guys saying that their innovation program probably is the one that sparked the need for this job here. So anyways, they had some wine guys kind of moonlighting in the spirits industry, kind of taking care of some of these customers that wanted to experiment with different types of barrels And I think once it grew to a certain point, that's like, okay, we need somebody full-time. Before me, I mean, there had been experimentation in the late 90s, early 90s, you know, with char levels, different wood species, wood seasoning times, and I'm sure we'll talk about all that and how it affects flavor. But the experiments were done, people tasted the whiskey, and again, it was just the fact that, you know, char threes and char fours were pumping out really, really good bourbon. And the craft distilling boom hadn't really hit yet, so there really wasn't any need for producers to be looking for differentiation. And then all this craziness happened and here we are.
3: What was the wine industry doing that kind of piqued the interest of people like makers or yourself, you know, to to take start doing those experimental or different chars or different toast or whatever?
1: Yeah, it, it kind of all centered around like the toast and what we call oak alternatives, which is kind of a, a weird term because it should be called barrel alternatives because they're still oak. But you had things like tank staves that went into wine for, you know, like kind of like low dollar wines that didn't have, you know, they didn't want to invest money in big expensive barrels. But you know, they found out we could toast up the oak to different temperatures, create different flavors, put it in the wine, and we would get some some really, really interesting stuff. And it just didn't take long to say, okay, well, let's differentiate from the char for a little bit. Let's put a different toast on this or in in, in the sense of maker's mark. And I hope they don't mind me, you know, dropping their name you know, quite a bit here. But I'm sure they yeah. love the publicity. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. But, you know, they said, wow, well, let's try to take some of this innovation to oak and introduce it into bourbon right now. So that's kind of how it transitioned. It's just a few companies, the craft boom, and all of a sudden, here we are.
3: So most people use like a standard three or four. What is it about the three or four that makes it like, I guess, a standard char versus like a one or two?
1: That's like a good question. So to start out with that, I mean, the charring system that we know today, the one, two, three, four, wasn't even standardized until the 1950s. All right. So everybody before then, there were a lot more cooperages. People probably getting blends of char ones char halves char five six you know kind of whatever came (laughs) down the line yeah yeah there really wasn't wait until you hit double digits that's that's the one i want
3: you left it on too long
1: (laughs) like my marshmallow yeah so as far as why the industry you know standardized on the actual char four it was probably the mindset you know back then a lot of the science was based on very early research and it was kind of like oh if we it a little bit, it creates, you know, this. Sort of, if we it even more, it must create better flavors, you know, so it probably just got to the point where, okay, you know, char four is just the I Ching, so mm-hmm. I, I can't but really answer why. for sure why it was the char four instead of the char two or why it was a minute long versus 30 seconds long was the standard. I, I'm not really sure. Gotcha. Dumb luck at that point. I think so. Yeah. I think it just wasn't until it was probably like, okay, hey, we're going to standardize these different char levels. Ten seconds, twenty seconds, 35, 55, whatever it might be, and then the major distillers like, okay, well, we want the deepest char. We want the, and that's probably how it happened. Do so, you have
3: a report of like how many F H char? Like, is is it four and three, or is four like the most by far that we, people
1: purchase, or is it? So that's kind of a weird number, just because the biggest distilleries purchase the char four. So there's more char four barrels out there, but. I'm not sure more. I'm not sure char four is what most distilleries purchase, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Yeah. But we've gone all the way up into a char eight. Oh. And what happened? Actually, uh, you know, contrary to popular belief, after char four, you start doing a little bit more harm than good. So you actually start robbing yourself of barrel components, diminishing returns after Cor- four. Yeah. Correct. And we experimented with that in the 90s as well. We did what we call a, I forget what they call it, but anyway, it was essentially a char level eight. It was like a two, two and a half minute burn which I'm not even sure how they kept the barrel together at that point. Cause after even a, a toasted char four barrels about ready to
0: yeah keel over. That yeah. Point. Keel over <laughs> that point like, for I for sure. Think, <laughs> and these rings aren't doing its job anymore. Yeah. yeah. So talk about coming into this role and, you know, being in this role for five years, you've got your own experiments that you're starting, but do you had to go and learn everything else that had worked or that had didn't work before you took this role? Mm-hmm. How much research and time was just invested in trying to figure out like, oh, uh, somebody came and asked me if we can do this. Uh, let me just go and look for our internal Wikipedia and see if this was actually done.
1: Like, how did you learn all this sort of stuff? So there's a couple of benefits. We really, we have, right now, what we have is like a whiskey library and it's just a library of bottles for different experimentations. Anything from, you know, wood species to, you know, seasoning times, that kind of thing. We had a few cases left over from the barrel symposiums back in the 90s. Now the barrel symposiums, what we did is we gathered up winemakers, distillers, and we had essentially, it's almost like a multi-day meeting. And the guys at ISC before me, they put different experiments into place at the distilleries. So we had a little bit of that whiskey left over. So I was able to read the Barrel Symposium books and get a little bit of an idea of kind of the things people were tinkering with and what the results were. That helped. The other thing that really, really helped was just reading as much as I could. As far as like journal entries, white papers, that kind of thing, dissertations, that's something that I hit really, really hard uh, within the first year for sure. And you know, nowadays, as far as you know, knowledge, it's really all the knowledge that I've gained is from our experimental barrel program that we have. So it's kind of a continuation of those experiments. That same kind of program that we started in the nineties fizzled out, and then we've kind of restarted. I think when I came in, we had a couple different experiments that were laid down. Very, very simple char level, maybe a wood species, something like that. We probably had maybe 50 barrels. Now we have over 3,000 in experiment. So we've gone from about 50 barrels to about 3,000 in the course of five years.
0: So you need to call the musics
3: yourselves to get warehouses.
0: We can
1: (laughs) almost build our own warehouse. Yeah, we've got them spread out all over the world. So
3: talk about like, how do you do that? Do you partner with other distillery, or do you have, are you doing it on site, or you however how do you go about that experimental process?
1: We do a lot of experiments on site, and that's how we kind of back into barrel design through a lot of lab work. But the actual barrel program that we I call it a barrel program, the experimental barrel program that we have is mostly partnerships with distilleries. So what we'll say is, okay, hey, we were in the lab, we saw this trend, we want to study it in a barrel format. Would you guys be willing to fill, you know, twenty four barrels or forty eight barrels with distillate? And allow us to take samples, you know, every single year. And most of the time, the distilleries they're very experimental uh, as well, and they're they're happy to oblige. So you just give them the barrel, say we'll give these no charge. In return, we're going to take it,
3: get feedback from it, and whatnot.
1: Right, and then we give them, you know, yearly reports on the chemical analysis at the end of the, the at the end of the uh, experiment. We provide a full report with sensory chemical, that kind of thing.
3: So what is it that you're looking for? Is it like flavors, or are you looking to speed up? processes with different or like what are like some key I want to say KPIs, KPIs but what are some like I guess bullet points that you're trying to hit with these experiments
1: right so a lot of it's just plain research and some of it is innovation by innovation I mean new product design so if we have an idea for a barrel you know we want to make sure that we test it thoroughly before we put it into production so we'll test it out for four years put it into production after that so and some of it's just research so for instance we have a climate experiment going right now where I've sent barrels to six different distilleries across the world in different microclimates. We had a producer actually make the whiskey in the same batch. Now that's not really going to help us sell any barrels, but it helps us be really, really knowledgeable about the products that we sell. So there's kind of divided into two things there. You've got, let's test this out. This could be a new product line, or let's figure out why this is doing a certain thing in the climate experiment. um, You know, we were talking about, you know, Drew and the, the experiments that we have going with him. We have a warehouse experiment. We're, again, not really going to help us, you know, sell barrels or anything, but we want to know what's going on at each at each level. So that's one of those experiments. It's more based on research as opposed to innovation.
0: So when you're yeah. doing this one about that, that goes to, you know, six barrels and different places and microclimates, mm-hmm. what do you expect to happen? Like, do you have a, do you come away with like do you start with like a hypothesis and think this is what's going to possibly happen? Or do you wait to just let the data roll in and try to figure it out?
1: So we try to come up with a reason for doing the experiment and that would be kind of that hypothesis saying, okay, this is what we hope to find out like what is going on. But sometimes- Let's justify the cost. Right, let's justify the cost of doing that because a lot of these experiments, I mean, some of these barrels, you know, they're 150 barrel experiments. Some of them are 500 barrel experiments, just kind of depends. So it can be a lot of money wrapped up into this. I'd say so. Yeah, every now and then, you know, we'll get a wild hair and just say, hey, let's just try this and see what happens. And most of the time, my boss is pretty cool with that. Which is great because, again, it is a big investment. So, for those guys to be able to have that kind of faith and just say, "Hey, yeah, for sure," just learn as much as you can. That's that's a pretty cool environment to work in.
3: Yeah, and I've seen these reports like Drew has shown me them when they look like you're studying like the deep ocean or something. Make like, sure people know what Drew you're talking <laughs> oh, about. Uh, Drew Goldsveen right. with uh, Willett Distillery. He is a good friend, and he's I knew he was doing experimentation with your all's barrels and stuff, and he had shown me the reports, and wow, it's like. I mean, they're like deep in depth. Like, like I said, they look like meteorological reports or like uh, weather reports. They're they're so in depth with with so much information.
1: Yeah, no, they do get in depth, and there's a lot to talk about, a lot to discuss, and a lot to determine as far you know what's going on. And we're measuring, you know, not only barrel factors but like environmental factors, and we're trying to relate that back to how the barrels are behaving. So there is a lot of stuff to tie back in and try to make sense of it all. It's very very nice when that does happen. But there are certain periods or certain instances in which we can, you know, look at the results and say, you know. That was a waste. Well, not necessarily a waste, but like, why in the world did it taste like this? We can't really figure it out. Which is, that's pretty interesting too. From the operation
0: side, and I can understand the the need to go and research different types of, of oaks, because you've got the standard American white oak. There's French oak and a bunch of other oaks. I know I've seen a bunch of stuff come out of like Warehouse X that they've been working on and stuff like that too, over at Buffalo Trace. But I would think that another thing that you've got to figure out is what is the impact of our our current geography and really what's happening in earth of, do we have old oak versus new oak? What can we sustainably create a business out of depending on where we're getting our oak from? Are there some of those kind of
1: experiments you're running as well? So, you know, as far as sustainability goes, we have a pretty good partnership with the White Oak Initiative, which is, again, it's kind of a collaboration between a lot of different companies, universities, in which we, you know, study sustainability and that kind of thing, preservation, just make sure that we, you know, preserve this resource, figure out how to make it last if, if something bad were to happen. As far as experiments into flavor, we're kind of limited just because we like to, how do I say this? we like to control the log all the way from the essentially the forest all the way to the cooperage so we like to keep or we like to offer products that we can readily get our hands on so again it's fun to study these alternative species like black sea oak or mizanar or something like that but it's just not something that we can keep a steady supply of and if you have customers you know, like Jim Beam, you got to be very, very careful when you show customers, you know, hey, here's an exotic oak. And they go, oh, we'd like 10,000 barrels. <laughs> 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 and it's kind of like, well, we, you know, we can't do that. So as far as flavor goes, the oaks that we experiment with the most, the ones that we offer are the European oak, the French oak, and then obviously the American white oak. But there's, you know, 600 different species of oak out there. A lot of them aren't suitable for barrels, but there's a lot of different options. for Is, sure. is there any
3: research into like uh, oaks growing, you know, the same species, white oak grown in different you know, parts of the country or even like on the same property, but on this side of that property, you know, that might be the honey hole for growing oak versus <laughs> over there. Yeah. You know, because I, 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 that happens in grapes or any other thing you're harvesting, you know.
1: It's a really, really good question. And I I mean, there has been initiatives to study that kind of thing. I can say with confidence that-, that might begin getting too in the weeds. And <laughs> no, it's not necessarily getting two in the weeds. From what I have seen about, let's say an, an oak tree that grows in Missouri as opposed to Kentucky. What I have seen in terms of tasting, again, it's it's very, very limited because it's not something we study really, really in depth. But from what I've seen, and we have done a few experiments, is I kind of equate that kind of differences in flavor towards what I call like the Best Buy analogy. So if you walk into a Best Buy, you'll see them put like a really, really nice TV next to a really kind of a value TV. And the reason they do that is because if you were to take that really, really nice TV, put it in one room, take the other one, put it in another room, and kind of walk back and forth, it would be really, really hard to tell the difference. So with experiments like that with American white oak grown in two different places, you can tell a difference on paper as far as chemically, but if you were to taste them side by side, you could tell a difference, but if you were to taste, you know, one day the next, it's very very difficult to do.
3: Sure. And then when you're logging them and milling them and they're all getting mixed in together and stuff, it kind of
1: Yeah, it, it's it's and it's it's very hard to separate in the mills especially at the pace that we produce. So, it, you know, it's hard for us to say, "Oh, we can only guarantee Kentucky oak or Missouri oak." And sure. again, from the experiments that I've tasted, the flavor differences aren't anywhere near as severe as like changing up a chart level or a toast level or going from a different species. Call it small batch oak. Yeah. I mean, that's, bat. what, that's, right. what,
0: that's what it is at the end of the day. You know, you just get it
3: the you'd be a hundred oak trees or it could be, you, you know, know, maybe some 30 years, uh, you know, they're all, they all get mixed in there. Yeah. The, what the, is a, the like average age of, I guess, of a harvested
1: um, oak tree? You're going to look somewhere between probably 80 to 130 years old. Oh wow. Cool. Yeah. And you know, you want to start to get that tree right before it starts to rot. Obviously, rotted right wood's not going to make a very good barrel. So, usually, one hundred and thirty years, kind of the top end, right there.
0: Yeah, and I also want listeners to know that the cooperage industry doesn't use near as much wood as the housing industry. So, if people are thinking like, "Oh my God, there's so much waste or anything going on," it's not the case at all.
1: Yeah, we're we're less than five percent of the market of hardwoods. So I mean, you know, pulp paper flooring; those are the those. Well, are the big and
3: guys. you all have such great, like you were talking about it, initiatives, and you know, their programs to like that you're investing in the future and there's actually more white oak species now than there has been in the past 30 or 40 years, just because of the, you know, the smart planning of, you know, harvesters back way back
1: when we've wised up in the past several decades. I mean, there's two and a half times more harvestable white oak now than there was 40 years ago and that's harvestable white oak. So that's a really, really good sign. And again, uh, you know, Brad Boswell, our president, who you guys have interviewed before, he takes a pretty, you know, firm stance on making sure that we're doing everything we can to, Not only use every bit of the trees that we cut down, but also you know preserve the resource.
3: What's something like a distiller? I guess what's a common thing or like the most thing they're like looking for when they're like, "Hey, uh, I really try something new. I want to try something new. What you know? I want this. I want that. Or I don't know. Do you get those a lot where they seek you out? Like, hey. Help me out.
1: Yeah, yeah, we. that's something that requires a pretty good portion of my day or my week um, is, you know, with the craft guys, it's a one thing with the heritage guys. It's usually something with the craft guys, you know, they don't have the luxury of, number one, sitting on barrels for a long time. And they also don't have nine-story warehouses where they can pull and get different flavors and all that kind of stuff. So they need points of differentiation. You know, they need something that's going to taste different than a char for because it's really hard to compete with distilleries that have been around for, you know, so long and have really, really good stocks of whiskey. So the craft guys are looking for points of differentiation. The Heritage guys are looking for the next new thing, like new products and stuff like that. Maturation is the easiest thing to vary by far. If you can take one liquid stream and make six different products, that's ideal. And you can do that by changing your barrel up. What do you think is the most bang for buck for product differentiation? What is the most bang for your buck? Well, like say
3: I'm looking to you and I'm like, hey, I really want you know something differentiate, but I don't, I don't want to be too off profile. What are you going to like? Lean me towards. Yeah. Like, give us an idea of like, what if
0: we were craft distillers when we came in, like, what would you steer us towards? What would you say? This is, these are the options that are available to you.
1: Right. So, we're going to ask you a bunch of different questions first. We're going to ask you, you know, what are you making? Uh, you wheat, know, wheat whiskey. Wheat whiskey. So, what is going to be the goals? Obviously, do you want something sell to a be, lot of it? Sell a lot of it. So, that's Ahead. good. So, you Ahead. want this Ahead. right when it turns four. <laughs> right. So, you want this <laughs> thing to be out in, you know, two years or something like that where you have a shell of a product in two years. So, what we're going to teach you is the dynamics of charring. Wood species, which ones are good for which products. So what I'm gonna tell you, if you want a two year old wheat whiskey and you want to get it on the shelf, first thing I'm gonna tell you is, you know, one of the, you know, key indicators of an older whiskey, a very nice age whiskey, is more extractives in the barrel, more flavors. So what's gonna give you the most extractives the quickest is gonna be a toasted char one barrel. A lot of people don't realize is that char fours develop the slowest. Char ones develop a little bit faster. So we'll lower the char level down, we'll make sure the whiskey gets to the red layer as quick Why as is possible. That? It's a little bit complicated, but... Get nerdy on us. Go for it. We can... we can. I mean, essentially, there's no flavor in the charred layer at all, right? So if we put a char four on there, it's got a pretty thick charred layer. The whiskey actually has to get through that. And... It's mostly just filtering, I guess. Yeah, the filters. And with a char four barrel, a lot of the flavors that are developed, they kind of sit near the back of the stave as opposed to like a char one barrel where we actually move those flavors a little bit closer. So you get a broad range of flavors a lot quicker as opposed to a charge for, we We're just moving everything closer. And then, you know, we'll say, do you have any flavor goals in mind? Well, yeah, we want it sweet. We want it spicy, that kind of thing. If that's the case, we'll put a toast profile on there that gives you a heavy dose of eugenol, which is going to be clove or spice. Uh, if you want sweet, we'll give you a toast profile that gives you a heavy dose of vanillin. So, you know, over the past two or three years, we've gotten really, really geeky in maturation programs and getting very, very specific to where we're tailoring barrels to certain mash bills.
3: All right. So say we want to do a two-year rye whiskey. Where, where are we going down now?
0: Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon.
3: All right, so say we want to do a two-year rye whiskey. Where, where are we going down now?
1: So if we're going to do a two-year rye whiskey, I'm going to say you know a two-year rye whiskey is going to do just fine, like a char three. We're or basically
3: char-
0: giving
1: away all of his consultation right here for free. <laughs> well, we get to our customers, our, our consultation is free. So I mean, yeah, could, they even if you're at the barrels, <laughs> yeah, even if you were to call up and we, you know, you could come to the R and D center and you could taste through all these different whiskeys and we could show you all this kind of stuff. But you know, rye whiskey is going to develop a lot quicker, so you can say, hey, you'll be fine, you know, putting in a char three or char four. That's going to be great, but if you really want to get some extractives in there, get a little bit more barrel forward. We can put you into, you know, a toasted char one or char two. I would probably steer you away from a spice profile because it just doesn't work, and I would probably bounce it out with a, a like you know a butterscotch or a, some brown sugar or something like that, or maybe some smoke. How do you get the butterscotch or brown sugar in there? So there's two main components in a barrel. Well, that make up oak. It's like hemicellulose and lignin. Those are the two components that we kind of study the degradation chains of, and. There's almost a systematic breakdown of those things, and that's I'm putting it kind of black and white there, but it's kind of like if you toast it to one temperature, you get an array of these flavors. You toast to a different temperature, you destroy those flavors, but build up a concentration of this one. So over 25 years of doing this, we've kind of got a really, really nice flavor wheel that we can kind of pick from. Certain wood species are going to give you heavier concentrations of certain flavors, certain seasoning times. They're going to do you know they're going to give you a, a different range of flavors so through the combination of all those different parameters that you can mess around with you can start to tailor the barrel to the product that's going in how long it's going to stay in what kind of flavors you want what kind of mouthfeel that kind of thing
0: you stole the question of my mouth of like well how do you know what kind of toast level like do you do you use like propane do you use butane like how do you how do you, how do you know the the exact kind of toast level to to kind of go in these things but you you kind of hit it there but the one thing that we didn't talk about was was the stave seasoning and, mm-hmm. and the aging of, or it sits in outside. So kind of talk about that and how that plays a huge role into this.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, seasoning, I'm a big believer in it. And we have a lot of customers that, you know, believe in it as well. So with our spirit barrels, we go anywhere between, you know, kind of the three to six month, all the way up to 24 month. And wine barrels, it's not uncommon to see like 48 month seasoning. There's a couple of different things it does. Probably it's most famous for removing tannins. So if you've got something like a low entry proof uh, and, you know, tannins like water so the more water you put in the mixture tannins can become a problem as it ages so seasoning is a good way to kind of soften that effect seasoning also gives you kind of a jump start on your extractive process so it breaks down some of those larger constituents turns them into more flavorful or more favorable components and it does give you about a 20 percent boost in extractives not all the way across the board but in some key components it does so for a younger whiskey or a double barrel you know seasoning is a really really good thing to do what about so
3: Say I want to do my rye whiskey in Texas versus New York. Is there any differences you would say? And
1: yeah, that that's that's tough, man. I mean, Texas is you're a, like it, move to Kentucky. Yeah, no, <laughs> Texas is a, is a tough place to 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 age whiskey. And I think you know part of that is just kind of embracing you know what you have to deal with and just trying to get the widest array of flavors into the barrel as quick as possible. Yeah, the, but there's
3: nothing about about the barrels that can like slow down evaporation or like kind mm-hmm. of
1: make it not as fast. It's just, it is what it is. It is kind of what it is. I mean, there are some things that have some theory behind them, you know, that can kind of maybe reduce, you know, evaporation. Again, it's, it's theory. I'm not really sure the validity behind it. It's just something that, you know, we've not really been a big believer in. It's been tested before and the results were mixed. Let's just say that, but I mean, you could always go to a bigger barrel. I mean, if you wanted, if you really, really wanted to, you could go to like a 300 liter barrel and that'll slow down the extraction quite a bit. But again, I think aging in hot environments is saying, okay, end of story, we're just not going to be able to keep the whiskey in the barrel that long. That's just the end of story. So we got to figure out how to get the right combination of flavors into the barrel in this amount of time and just build a really nice complex product.
0: So I guess uh, one of the things that I, I want to kind of get back to is this idea of everything you did at Makers. Mm-hmm. So kind of talk about the process of helping them figuring out state profiles and if you worked with you know Bill Samuels, if you work with Jane Jane Bowie about all this other kind of stuff of A, figuring out and kind of telling the story of where the names came from
1: too. So, you know, as far as working with the makers, I mean, they pretty much have everything set up in line as far as the flavor, what they call the flavor vision. So they've got essentially everything all laid out right before when I get there as far as like, hey, we got this new project and here's exactly what we want it to taste like. You know, here's the story behind it. And then, you know, they usually they'll give me some whiskey. I'll go to the lab and just try to figure out how to you know, get these different flavors that they're looking for out of the whiskey. Some of them are adding barrel flavors, which is very easy. That was uh, like the 2020 release. The 2019 RC6, that was a little bit more difficult because the object there was not to add barrel flavor. It was to add an oak component that would elevate yeast character. So that was really, really difficult well, to do. Whatever it's,
3: you did, I got almond milk latte out of that. I yeah, it, was, yeah. it was so good. Yeah. So that one,
1: <laughs> that one took us a little bit, but yeah, as far as, you know, Mager's Mark goes, their wood innovation program is is pretty awesome. You know, they've got a lot of great ideas and they love to experiment, which I think helps out. Um, but essentially, they've got everything laid out for me. They give me the goals and I just go away for however long I need. And then I'll bring them back five or six different samples and just, I won't tell them anything about it. I'll give them to Jane and, you know, her and Beth and they'll, they'll taste it and say, okay, this is the one that's on track. We'll take that one. We'll do a couple more iterations of it. And eventually we just, we get it nailed down.
3: What do you think about them getting rid of the mocha stave? Uh, On their private blends,
1: yeah. I mean, <laughs> that was, you know, I guess it's it's fine. You know, whatever they wanted to do. <laughs> that was a really really good stave. I know. Well, I know. Hello. Long, gosh, well, I mean, that was a really really good stave. It was one of my favorites for sure. But man, I love that cuvee one. Just it's like remind me of old granddad or something by itself, like butterscotch. I'm more of a vanilla guy as far as it comes to bourbon. So the pure two stave is my favorite. But this new one that that they just came out with the Mondion is. The, the Mondion, what's Mondion. that? It's, it's the new stave that replaced the Mocha. Okay. And it's 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 pretty good as well. We haven't been there yet. What's what's like? I mean, the, I guess
0: like? talk about the development of it. Like, how do you... I know I've heard, you know, put them in and convection and all this other kind of stuff to mm-hmm. try and pull some of these different flavors out. Give us a little more detail there, if you can.
1: Yeah, no, I, I can... Up to a certain extent, I mean, as far as the development goes, you know, the difficult thing with the Private Select is that it's not like a singular product, right? There's a wide array of things that this could be once you add a new stave to it. So getting a stave to taste a certain way is one thing, but then you have to make sure that that stave blends well with the others and it doesn't overpower, doesn't underpower, doesn't make bad flavors when you get it in certain combinations. So that's really kind of the legwork of developing a new stave for Private Select. It's not necessarily getting the stave that's going to give you the right flavor. It's getting the stave that's going to blend together and give you the right flavor. So that, I mean, that took four years to do. Wow. Yeah. Let's say and so- we tried, I, I don't know how many hundreds of stays that we tried, but it just takes a long time and people think four years, but it's, you know, it's not like we're working on it every day. I mean, you know, we're aging the whiskey for a matter of, you know, a couple months and then we're tasting it and then they have to go back and, and the people at makers have to blend all it with different combinations. So, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work that they have to do for sure. I got the easy part and, and the makers mark development. So yeah, they, they've got the hard job
0: so do you have a special day set aside for tasting experiments?
1: And you're like, hey, it's tasting day. Let's go. Let's go at it. Uh, Friday is research day. Um, That's but, what we call it. Research uh, yeah, day. Yeah, <laughs> research day. But, you know, anytime, whatever Jane needs, you know, she can just call and, you know, we'll yeah, do whatever they need for yeah, sure. right down
3: the road. You know, we'll yeah. We'll pop that, in. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's, you know, hey, you know, sometimes, hey, can I come over and, you know, come, I got an idea or, you know, she said, hey, can you come over and taste this? So uh, it's a great relationship with Maker's Mark definitely interesting always learn something but we don't really necessarily have a day set aside for tastings i mean we get whiskey in all the time that we have to taste um we have a sensory panel that works out of my office so you know we do that a lot but uh, as far as a dedicated day no i mean friday's research day so you can kind of gather
0: why we made it on friday (laughs) it's probably go to lunch and then uh,
3: call it a day after that then that's right
1: John draper lunch (laughs) (laughs) so is it
3: easier to work with Maker's Mark because their product's so consistent versus you know because they're rotating barrels and try to hit? Whereas other distilleries have a you know like they're in different areas of the warehouse could bring up different flavor profiles.
1: And- yeah, anytime you have a consistent base, it makes things a lot easier. I mean, there's there's not really distilleries that are difficult to work with. I mean, it's all fun. It's all different. So everybody provides you know kind of a unique experience for us in the in the research department. Uh, but yeah, with any distillery, if you've got a base product and it's going to be very very consistent, that makes Makes things very very easy for sure.
3: Do you see any differences in like, uh, I guess I'm just thinking about like Heaven Hill's new fifty thousand barrel warehouses versus like a uh, one of Drew has five thousand barrels or some. Do you see wide differentiations in, you know, the, how the barrels react in those certain circumstances, or is it to be determined?
1: So there are differences. Most of the distilleries they do their own research in that, and I've been privy to a little bit of that. I can't. Can't really say anything about it, but, you know, we have warehouse experiments. We can definitely, you know, gather that there's going to be some differences between a 50,000 and a 5,000, just, you know, just, you know, based off, you know, thermodynamics and that kind of thing. But we, ISC, have not gotten the privilege yet to put in our own experiment where we would study a 50,000 versus 20,000, get whiskey back, run a chemical analysis, and since we haven't done that yet.
0: I mean, I guess the the tough part is that this is not something that you uh – say let's go ahead and do this we'll come back next week
3: i mean this is this is based on years, yeah i mean
1: years, with the nothing
3: research. fast in the bourbon industry no. yeah
0: it's
1: and you know it's it's usually with our experiments unless we're doing like a double barrel experiment or something like that i mean at the minimum they're four years so if we want to launch a new product we've i mean the products that are launching today like our new product lines i mean those were four years in the making so How about I, the
3: rise of double barrels or you know what What oh, about that? Oh, gosh. Yeah, the, and the it toasted like barrel rise and the
0: double-barreled of everything. It was yeah, like right? Michter's
3: Toasted, I think, was the first one I remember. And then now it's like everyone has one. Like, what is it about it that people love?
1: Well, as far as double-barreling or just as far as toasted goes? Well, well it's both, a combination I mean. of Combination, of yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, uh,
0: people are taking their aged whiskey and then re-barreling it into a toasted barrel to kind of give it different flavor, flavor profiles. And it started off with, I think you're right, Michter's. And then from there, everybody else has said, sure, we'll do that too.
1: Yeah, so a couple different things there. I mean, number one, like toasted barrel just sounds good. (laughs) It does. You know, so I mean, you know, 80% of what you taste is going to be, you know, it's going to filter through your brain first before it ever gets to your olfactory. So that's a big part of it. I mean, toasted barrel sounds good and therefore it is going to be good. It just so happens that toasted barrels are very, very potent in terms of flavor. I mean, they put out a lot of flavor because there's no char layer to go through, right? Um, Toasted barrels are also very, very precise, so you can put a very, very precise flavor profile into that barrel without having to add a char. Charring disrupts the toast profile, makes it a little bit less accurate. But essentially, as soon as that whiskey hits the barrel, it's running into nothing but flavor. So they're just really potent. They have a lot of mouthfeel. They're thick. They can usually produce flavors that are easy for people to pick out, which I think is another reason why a lot of people you know enjoy those things. But it just adds a lot of flavor. Is there certain numbers of toast
3: or levels like there are of chars, or is it? I mean, just on. Or our, do you just tell you what flavors and you you're like, we'll take care of it from here. We'll take the cinnamon <laughs> one.
1: Yeah, no, and it 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 kind of started out as we had a, like a off the shelf of about 150 different flavor pro, or toast profiles, and it was kind of like, okay, we can't just throw this book at a customer because they don't know what they're doing. So now we've. <laughs> I kinda, need five, just five. Yeah. The way that we prefer it we've actually designed a new series of barrels, and you know, forgive the naming convention here. We're not very creative, but it's the sweet one sweet two, spice one, and smoke one. Love it. So we designed Keep four toast profiles. It, right? Yeah, they give you very specific flavors so people know. But, I mean, we create customized toast profiles for distilleries on a weekly basis. And I guess with the toast stuff, is it, is it the same thing as a, as a bourbon? Is it
0: one and done and you got to get another bourbon barrel? Or is there a lot of ways that people can use them twice or anything like that? But I guess maybe they wouldn't be a straight bourbon whiskey if they tried to use it in a used barrel. But... I'm just kind of curious if there's anything else that you could pull out of a used barrel or a toasted barrel or if it's just kind of needs to go on to the, the furniture store after that.
1: So, I mean, in general, I'm not trying to get into the, you know, the TTV regulations because that's kind of a whole different story. And we've become self-taught experts in that through all the different barrel applications that we've done. But, I mean, generally speaking, in Kentucky, and it's going to vary depending on which climate you're in, but your extraction period is going to last anywhere between two to four years. So that's where you're going to get a heavy amount of extractives in. So most of the toasted barrel applications that we design for are going to be less than 10 weeks. So you still have a lot of flavor left in those barrels. Now, after you use it once, as you said, it's not really a new barrel anymore. So that takes some things out of, you could just call it a straight bourbon whiskey. It has to be. You know, straight bourbon whiskey, finishing a used barrel or finishing a a, a once-used toasted barrel or some kind of label craziness going on there. On the back. Tucked in the back. We'll figure that one (laughs) out later. The point is, is that if you use a barrel for a very short time, a matter of weeks, a month, even a year, there's still going to be plenty of flavor left in that. So yeah, I mean, reusing it. It's not in my interest to say keep reusing the barrels because we want to make new ones, (laughs) but we want to be the best consultant. So yeah, absolutely. If you've got an American, if you've got a, a bourbon product and you've got an American whiskey on your line too, reuse the toasted barrel for sure. So you've been doing this for for five years now in this role.
0: Mm-hmm. And you've started your own experiments. You've seen some that have come in. Can you name one that you tried and you were like, oh, this is this was a mistake. Like, we're never gonna do this.
1: Um, Thought this was gonna yeah, be a winner. Okay. Yeah. Where do I start? I mean, we fail, you know, more times than we. The good news is working with new barrels, if you toast it and you chart, there's really not much you can. I mean, it's gonna be it's gonna produce some really, really good flavors, but you know there are some applications like triple barreling and stuff like that where like okay that don't ever do that again or you know we've tried you know double barreling like you know fifteen year old whisk, you know, don't do that again so there are some failures and stuff like that but nothing that really sticks out is like oh my gosh don't whew, you know, throw this stuff away mm-hmm. yeah most of the time it turns out okay
0: I mean we've we've really went into you know the history and the science and everything that that you you really kind of put forth here today and I feel that. As a consumer and as a lot of our listeners or consumers out there, do you feel that and I, I'm probably thinking this myself, do we not take, do we take the barrel for granted and all the work that goes into it? Because I feel that we should it should be more like what makers mark does for you know for the private selection barrels. It should be something where maybe it's on a label that says this was in 24-month air-dried stave barrels with the level whatever char. And the customers love that transparency.
3: Do you kind of feel that... It's, ISC should be on the
0: label. Or, or you know, something. That badge of honor. <laughs> I mean, do you feel like it's... A, it's a, we,
1: we all kind of take it for
0: granted a little bit because it's it seems like it's still so behind the scenes.
1: It's very behind the scenes. I mean, you know, the barrel, you know, is responsible for a lot, but you have to do the front-end procedure correctly. I mean, you have to have the good whiskey. But, you know, I think the majority... And I think us being in Kentucky and, you know, being knee deep in this stuff, I think we get a little bit of a biased opinion on, you know, what is cool and, you know, what's interesting. I mean, I'm a nerd. So, yeah, I would want every detail of the barrel on the bottle if I could have it just because I think that's kind of stuff is interesting. But, you know, a lot of people just like bourbon and they just they're okay with Mm -hmm. it just tasting really, really good. They could, you know, we've 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 we do these trade shows and, you know, we do um, different like the what's the uh, bourbon festival. We do the New Orleans bourbon festival. We do these presentations to consumers. And they could some of them could care less about whether it's a char one, char two, right. char three, it's char like, four. It Tastes good, yeah, right. Um, so, it's a lot of um, and then you have a portion of the you know the demographic that's just really into it, asking a whole lot of questions. So, I don't know if I could really answer your question or not. I think it's just going to be split. sides. You don't, yeah, you it, don't
3: need it. You don't yeah, need it's going to
1: it's gonna be dependent on who you ask. Some people just love bourbon, love to drink it, and that's enough for them. They like the story more so than they like the the process. The process, yeah. and that's great. That's how I started off for sure. I didn't care about a char three or char four this stuff just tastes good to me but i think the more you get into it it's just kind of a natural evolution you're going to want to know as much as you can so say i got bad distillate is there something <laughs> you can, <do? laughs> How can you fix it with can you
3: fi- what barrel are you going to recommend to fix no i'm kidding
1: <laughs> no well i mean we get that i mean in the age of you know source whiskey which there's a lot of that stuff out right now we get Say hey, we got a bad batch, and you know it's not really tasting good. Can you do anything to mask that? I mean, and there are I like could cert- do a secondary finished or double barrel to right, and that's a great way to do that. Yeah, and there's certain barrels sense. you would use, and there's certain barrels you wouldn't. But you know, there's a lot of times where there's certain faults in the whiskey that uh, you just can't cover so up. Every so every
3: source product I know is double barrel, and like. It was a bad batch <laughs> and now i getting it. We know what they're <laughs> well, trying to hide.
1: Yeah, no. Well, the, the other thing is, is that, you know, a lot of people, especially when this whole thing started off, I mean, a lot of people were buying the same juice. You know, there wasn't very many people sourcing or selling sure. aged whiskey. So it's like, you know, how do we differentiate from the rest of the people that are sourcing? And again, double-barreling is a great way to do that.
0: For sure. Now, has there ever been kind of like one of the last questions here? Has there ever been a time where a customer has asked you for something so asinine or off the wall that you're like, we
3: we can't do that? It's impossible. When they've been persistent.
1: <laughs> there's there's a couple instances in which, I, and I said, you know, we want to sell barrels too, and we'd love to tell you, but you know, we're brutally honest. Um, you know, if if somebody sends us a whiskey in and they have just some unreal flavor goals, like we want to do a two year old whiskey, we want it to have like, you know, vanilla and this and that. We're like, you know, you just you just can't do that. I mean, we've had guys send us, you know, they're starting distilleries and they send we want our and they send us a bottle like Buffalo Trace. So we want our whiskey to taste like this. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, we have to explain that's just not... Even if you had the exact same equipment, exact same recipe, everything, it's still going to taste different. And there are times when, um, you know, we get a whiskey in and it's just pristine. And we, we give them our honest opinion say, if it was up to us, we, would, we wouldn't we would even touch it. So... Uh, char uh, 4. Char 4. Let char it ride. Four. Yeah. We, tr- we try to be as honest as we can. So, uh, one
3: last question for... You. There's a lot of Mizanara casks, you mm-hmm. know, coming up. Do you think that's here to stay or that's going to be a new trend? It seems like a lot of people are kind of going, you know, down that path also... And what is it about the Mizanara that makes it an attractive species?
1: I think it's just kind of the exotic nature of the species. It It does does, sound exotic. It does. It's very hard to get. And there are some producers over there that keep a pretty tight handle on it. I mean, we try to get some for experimentation. They're like, well, what are you going to use it for this, that? So they want a lot of specifics. So for that reason, I don't know if it'll ever really catch on and be like this huge craze. Obviously, it sounds great, but it's just very, very low. Low supply.
0: It's like limited bourbon. Everybody wants what they can't
1: have. That's exactly it. And again, yeah. mizenar Oak just sounds really, really good. It does you know, sound Japanese fancy. Though. Yeah. Sounds so. high dollar. Yeah. It definitely it, does. Yeah. It could catch on if there was enough of it. I'm not a particular fan of it just because I think it's overly spicy and I'm just not a big fan of, of real spicy bourbon, but there are plenty of people out there that like it. I mean, it makes a fine whiskey. Yeah, for sure.
0: Well, Andrew, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show today. You definitely schooled us and I think you gave the consumer a much better appreciation for the work that... Not just you all, but you represent a lot of, you know, the other cooperages out there. And you kind of make people understand that there's a lot of work that happens in the back end. And that's what makes the difference of, you know, what your bourbon's going to be like versus something, you know, the different char levels, the the way that the producer anticipates it, what they want it to be like and and how it ultimately ends up in their, their bottles and their hands.
1: Yeah, man, there's a lot that goes into it, you know, especially when it comes to the barrel. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. You don't see period, whether it's the distillery or the cooperage. So it's definitely a fascinating job. And if people are interested in it, I mean, our cooperage is open for tours. You know, feel back open. Yeah, please, please come on by and check us, check us out, see what we're all about for sure.
0: Well, I guess we'll we'll kind of give you that. So if people do want to find out more about ISC and take a tour, how do they do it?
1: Yeah, the best place to go is you know you can go to our you know our Instagram ISC Barrels, um, ISC That'll lead you right to the place where you can sign up for tours and that kind of thing. But we do tours in Kentucky. And uh, definitely love to have you yeah, for sure.
0: You got to be there to see the uh, got to see the fire, right? You Got to oh, see it wow. all. You, come, you come
1: out smelling like a cooperage. Everybody loves it for sure. <laughs> Campfire.
0: Yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. I mean,
3: who needs an air freshener in their car when you just go to take a cooperage tour? Yeah, man. Those barrel. It's funny. I have an old barrel that was rotten down my my woods. I threw it in my fire. God damn, that thing lit up like it was it was awesome. <laughs> yeah.
1: No. It's uh, I I get a. I do have some staves to burn when I'm in my house. So <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I know a guy. But yeah, we get some of the used barrels back um and you know, we'll study them, take them down, then break them down and then I'll usually take the wood home and oh, makes great firewood for it sure. It
0: does. All right, god, last question then. So you get a used barrel back, what do you anticipate or what do you look at? What are you what are you looking for?
1: Most of the time when we get a look at least in my department, you know, we're studying like absorption rates. So, you know, how far the whiskey seeps in the barrel over, how long? You know that kind of thing, and what's again, what's
3: the it, farthest you've seen it go in there?
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> it's going out of the wood on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah.
0: no,
3: I mean, true. Fair use, use leaky I mean, barrel. or oh, want to talk about leaky barrels. Oh, oh. You have to. Yeah.
1: Well, I'd say about halfway through, for the most part. Now, I mean, it's really hard to look at it because really, what you see going through the middle of that stave, there's components in there, but they're only ones that had interaction actually made a color. So, we've actually tested staves all the way through, and we've found distal components past that red line. Is what everybody kind of calls it. So, you can look at a stave and say, okay, it went this far, but to really get an idea of how far the whiskey made it through, you have to kind of take that stave, tear it apart, grind it up, extract it, and then, you know, see how far those different acids and stuff that don't produce colors or interactions with oxygen. That's how you really see how far. So, as far as I've seen, maybe half or maybe in between half and three quarters. Okay.
3: All right. There's the other. Oh, you got the one. One last question. last question: the leaky barrel theory. We don't make leaky barrels. Well, <laughs> well, fair enough. I <laughs> love it. Uh, but but that is some the people best say that leaky barrels are you know make some of the better single barrels. Uh, and we know Bill Thomas has taken some barrels, drained half of them to see like. And we haven't got any research. Do you do any research on that? Well, probably not because you don't want to sell leaky barrels. No, but, we definitely not
1: uh, I mean, but is there a theory or something kind of? There could be. You know, some theories, and I think, you know, one of the things, a strategy that we often tell people to employ is short-filling barrels. A lot of the maturation, again, happens past the initial extraction period. And to start doing a lot of that maturation, you have to have headspace in that barrel because that's where the majority of the oxygen is going to get replenished, right, is in that headspace. So if you can jumpstart that process, right, and start getting some of those oxidative reactions to occur a little bit quicker... That works out pretty good. So what are we talking? Leaving out five gallons, ten gallons? Uh yeah. I mean, yes. You know, whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever you want to do. I mean,
3: it's called an experiment, right? Yeah. Figure it out yourself. Forty-eight, but forty-eight
0: Yeah. Barrel. I mean, we yeah.
1: we sell new barrels, so if you just want to short fill it to about half. We don't care. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be fine. Just buy the
3: fifty-three.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. So yeah, that that is a technique, and I've seen that work really, really well. Proofing down in the barrels and their technique, we've seen work really, really well. So there, I, I think if there is going to be you know any kind of validity to you know the leaker barrels produce really, really good whiskey, it would probably be because they had just a greater amount of headspace for a longer period of time.
3: There, we go, makes sense.
1: Now,
0: now we've got it. I think we've got all our questions. If we're not, we're gonna to have to have you come back on again because I'm sure, Part we'll, two. yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have that come at some point. Sure,
1: a lot more to talk about,
0: yeah. But Andrew, thank you again for once again coming on the show. Make sure you follow ISC Barrels, go and take a tour. You're not going to take a tour of anything that we have, but you can follow us on all of our socials as well, Bourbon Pursuit. Uh, com as well as, you know, Bourbon Pursuit everywhere else. But with that, cheers, everybody. Thank you so much. And we'll see you all next week.
1: Thanks, guys. Cheers.